called Redirect, and it's about redirecting uh, different parts of our lives to the right direction and seeing massive change. I'll share this story I shared last week very quickly just to give you a, a little update, just to give you a little review if you weren't here, but this came from a story I heard. My, mo my mom has a friend whose husband uh, was injured in a, at an accident. He was working on a car and the car fell on him. And my mom's friend says two things to her. Number one, she says, I don't know why God is punishing me for all the bad things I've done by making this car fall on my husband. And number two, I guess I just don't have the faith to believe that, that uh, I'll, ever be, uh, I'll ever be anything other than punished. And I, my mom's telling me this story and I'm like, okay, first of all, like, God does not make cars fall on people, right? Why doesn't she, her brain say, thank you, God, for saving him? A car fell on him and he's alive, right? That's God that saved him, not God that pushed the car over, right? An unsteady jack pushed the car over, right? But then she says, I don't have the faith to believe I'll ever have a relationship or, or something to this nature with him other than being punished. And I was like, this lady is so off. She actually has a ton of faith. She has faith that a massive God who created the universe takes time out of his day to focus on one lady out of 8 billion people. And he takes the time to say, you partied too much in high school. So boom, this car is going to fall on your husband's head. That is a lot of faith. She has faith that God sees her. She has faith that God takes the time to affect her life. She has so much faith. It's just directed at the wrong God. It's directed at one of those gods in that Greek temple, whatever, the God of bad carjacks or something. It's not directed to the God of the universe who loves, who saves, who protects, who is on her side, who is for her. If she just knew the nature of the real God, then all that faith that she has in that wrong will be directed towards him and she'll see a difference in her life. She'll change her life. And there are so many things in all of our lives that are so similar. If we'll just take the things that the Lord has put in our hand and we use them for his purpose, we'll redirect some of our own life and we'll see victory. So we talked about some of that last week. We, we, we kind of stopped last week talking about here's how we start. We look to Jesus. And then we had communion as a body because what a better way. There's no better way than to look to Jesus through breaking the bread and, and partaking in his body and his blood together to start this process of looking to him. So this lady might think she's looking to Jesus by praying, right? But she just doesn't have a proper idea of who he is and his nature. So how do we do that? We pick up the word and we begin to read it. There's just no way around it. If you come to our church, you're going to hear me say this more than you hear me say pray. You're going to hear me say pick up the word and get to know it. More than you hear me say let's worship, you're going to hear me say pick up the word and let's get to know it. More than you hear me say let's go feed the hungry, let's go serve Gastonia Street Ministry. More than you hear me say anything, you're going to hear me say let's pick up the word and get into it. you got to do it as well. Have you ever flown on a plane and they give you uh, the little spiel before you fly and they're like, if for some reason there's an emergency, put your emergency mask on before you help anybody else, right? You're not going to be able to help anybody if you're on this plane suffocating. It's the same thing with the word. Before you go off trying to preach to somebody else, before you go off trying to have your prayer time and your worship time with God, you got to get to know the word. Because if you open yourself up to things in the spirit, there's more than just the voice of God out there. Jaron and Brandon gave a word about it. The enemy is out there lying and prophesying lies and speaking ugly stuff out there. 
If you open yourself up to the Spirit through worship, through prayer, you got to know the voice of your shepherd. The Bible says sheep know the voice of the shepherd. Here's how you know your shepherd's voice. It's time with him. If you don't know your shepherd's voice, you're not sitting beside him and just listening. I mean, I might talk too much, right? You got to listen. You got to pick this up. This is that oxygen mask that gives you what you need to go out and do everything else. This is the foundation of your faith. And when you get to know the living word, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Man, Joel had a word or somebody had a word this morning reminding us that God said, I sent my word. Jesus is the living word. All these things spoken from Genesis chapter 1 through the end of Malachi were the word that Jesus then represented, came and lived as the, the flesh version of the word, lived it, showed us what it means, show us who he was. And he tells Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you say what's God like, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and read about Jesus because Jesus told Philip, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. But what does God think when I mess up? Look to the Word. Find out how did Jesus respond to people when they messed up because that's how God responds to you. How does God respond to me when I doubt? Go to the Word. See how Jesus responded to people when they doubted and you'll know how God responds to you when you doubt. Spoiler alert. It's never with condemnation. It's never with a finger wagging in your face saying, well, now you've messed up too much. When you doubt, he says, hey, let me help your unbelief. When you mess up, he says, let me help you up. In fact, let me disperse all these people that are trying to cast stones at you. Let me help you up and let me help you on your way. What about when I'm living in sin? Well, read the word. How does Jesus respond to people who are living in sin? There's a woman at the well. And he says, you don't have a husband. You're, you're right. You've got five. And she goes, uh-oh. And then before that day was over, her and her entire town heard the gospel. And there was a revival. And there was a, a movement because he didn't kick her out of his presence. He invited her and the whole town into it. you got to look to Jesus. And you get your faith directed away from all this fake stuff you've heard over the years. Direct it towards the living God and you will see your faith ignited with more passion and more purpose than you've ever seen. So this happened with the Apostle Paul. You know, he was known as Saul. He was a killer of Christians. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. And he had an encounter. He saw Jesus. He actually saw Jesus on the road. Jesus appeared to him, right? And then uh, it's easy to think, and it, because when you read the word, sometimes a, a period of time seems like, overnight. And, and, and a lot of times when you study it, there's actually a long period of time in between chapter one and chapter two of different things. So when you read the story of Paul, you might all of a sudden picture him after this, after this conversion he had on the road to Damascus the very next day, sailing and telling people about Jesus and writing scripture. Well, one of those things actually happened. Here we go in Acts chapter 9, verse 19 through 21. This is after Paul's conversion, after he met with the believers. Uh, it says, after he ate some food and regained his strength, Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. And immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue. So here was what happened immediately. He immediately started saying, hey, I was wrong. The law does not save us. There's a savior. His name is Jesus. I met him on the road just a few weeks ago and he's changed my life. 
He's all about love. He loves me. He loved me in my mess. He loves you in your mess. And he wants to have a relationship with you, not based on your actions, but based on his actions of living for us. He died for us. He rose again. He's not in that grave we thought he was in. He's alive. That happened immediately. He immediately began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is indeed the son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? So notice all of his actions redirected from accusing Christians, killing Christians, to literally going out and making more Christians. They asked that. And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? So he came to the city. His mission was to arrest Christians and take them to the leading priest. He ended up standing in that same synagogue, bringing more people to the faith and telling more people about Jesus. The exact opposite. All of his energy, all of that stuff, he was every bit of mental energy, physical energy he was using was redirected towards spreading the gospel. When somebody who's passionate about something gets saved, watch out. Because all of a sudden, all that passion they got towards building their own kingdom is shifted towards building the kingdom of God. That's why you see so many celebrities, when they do have an encounter with Jesus, all of a sudden they get lifted up on this giant pedestal. That's not 100% great for them because sometimes that leads to a pretty sudden fall. But really, the reason that happens is because the people that are so passionate in one area, they begin to redirect all this passion towards the Bible. They begin to read all this passion towards their salvation. And, 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 and that's attractive. And it's like, oh, man, let's, let's, let's figure out how, how this person can, can now lead a movement. Sometimes people need some time before they lead a movement. Read this in Galatians 1, 15 through 20. So Paul, a period of time has passed. He's writing a letter to the church in Galatia. And he says this, even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. You know, you can say that about yourself as well. Even before you were born, God chose you, called you by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. Well, now I feel bad because God has never revealed his son to me. Paul had Jesus revealed to him on the road to Damascus because this didn't exist at the time. This is God revealing his son to you. You have something better than Paul's vision on the road to Damascus. You got the word right here at your fingertips. This is the son of God revealed to you. It's better than what happened to Paul. When this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. Then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter. And I stayed with him for 15 days. The only other apostle I met at that time was James, the Lord's brother. I declare before God that what I'm writing to you is not a lie. So Paul spent at least three years after his road to Damascus conversion. Yes, he immediately told people about Jesus. But before he was acting as the apostolic leader of the church, before he was writing scripture and writing letters to the churches, correcting their behavior and telling them about Jesus, he did something for three years, at least. It could have been a little bit longer. And you know what he says here in this little paragraph we just read? We talk about him looking to Jesus. Last week he had this encounter with Jesus. Here's what else he was doing. He was changing his old patterns of thinking and he was experiencing the truth for himself during those three years. 
Now that is two things that every one of us need to be doing at all times. Really three things. Looking to Jesus. Number two, then we begin to change our wrong patterns of thinking. We got to do that on purpose, right? You got to read something in here and you got to say, uh-oh, I always thought something different. I need to change the way I think about this certain thing. And then three, once you begin to change the way you think, experience it for yourself. How do you do that? Man, I thought about two different ways we can do this, this experience. Number one, we can find what we're thinking about. We can find this truth in the word and then we got to live it. Don't just live it. Don't just apply something to your life all willy-nilly, not trying to do the research for yourself. I say this to y'all all the time. Don't even just take my word for the things you hear me say up here, right? Like, I'm going to get up here and I'm going to preach. I'm going to do my best to tell you guys the truth. Don't take my word for it, though. Go home and look up the things I say. Keep it accountable. Make sure Pastor BJ's not up here talking crazy stuff that you're then going off and applying it to your life. Go find it in the word for yourself. And then you will experience it. Then it becomes revelation to you. A minister told me this when I first started pastor, and he said, listen, if you're preaching somebody else's message or something you learned from them, you got to give them credit one time. And then after that, it's yours. And then you can say it's your thing every time after that. Right? So it's not actually that wrong, right? Take the things I say from here and be like, man, Pastor BJ said this today. I need to go take this, check it out for myself before I apply it to my life. And I'm telling you, you'll see breakthrough. You'll see breakthrough because either you're going to not apply something destructive to your life or you're going to find out something I'm saying is actually very productive and actually the truth. You're going to apply it to your life and you're going to see change. Listen, if you're emailing me and texting me about the same old stuff every week and you're not growing, something is wrong, right? Either you're not applying the things we're talking about, right? Or, I don't know, something else. But that's the first thing I can think of. You must just not be applying it. You got to apply the word. Don't just let it go in one ear out the other. But you're not going to apply it for the most part unless you find it for yourself, right? This is a pastor's favorite verse. Jesus said in the book of John, you need that no man teach you. Jesus said that. What he was saying was, you got the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. And if you go to the word yourself, then you can get through this life simply applying the word and letting the Holy Spirit teach you. So is this still beneficial, what we're doing? Oh, it's absolutely beneficial. Because man, when iron gets together with other iron, iron sharpens iron. We keep each other sharp. We inspire each other to go look at the word and apply things to our lives. So it's beneficial. But man, if you were living to your fullest potential as a believer and you were reading the word for yourself and applying it to your life, the Holy Spirit could teach you everything you need to know on your own. Now, here's one thing that happens when you get alone for too long. You do get super weird. So that's one thing about church that stops you from. Hopefully there's someone sitting beside you that loves you enough to grab you and say, hey, listen, uh, you're getting pretty weird. You might need to take a step back from some of this stuff. And y'all think I'm kind of joking. I actually not. Like, that was the one thing I was hoping you weren't going to laugh at. Like, we, we, we need to stop each other from getting super weird. Paul wrote this scripture, too. He said, I've seen some Christians that are too spiritually minded to be any earthly good. Right? We are spiritual beings. We do live on a physical earth. So for at least a time, we got to be at least a little aware of both. Right? You can't be walking into a place all John the Baptist out wearing camel skin and being all smelly this day and age thinking someone's going to listen to you when you try to share the word of God with them. So I don't even know where that came from. I don't know. I was around too many 
hippies, I guess, recently. I don't know. But here's what we can learn from Paul, how to redirect any part of our life that needs redirecting. We're going to start with number one, looking to Jesus. How do we do it? Right here. It's the Word. He's the living Word. If you don't know where to start, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's all about Jesus. Read it. Read it every day. I read something out of the Gospels every day. Every day. Have I read it a thousand times? I've read it a thousand times. I've read it 10,000 times. Every time I get something new, I see something new. Every time it speaks to a situation that I didn't even realize this particular verse could speak to. Years ago in Cuba, Lisa's parents, Pastor Dean and Lisa, were on this trip. And uh, I've told this story recently to our discipleship class, but I don't think I've told the whole church recently. There was a pastor who was preaching from his pulpit at his church in Cuba. It's a big church considering it's illegal to be a Christian and have church there. But he's sitting there preaching from his pulpit and there's no Bible. And at the end of the message, Pastor Dean walked up and saw that he had one page out of the book of Leviticus ripped out on his pulpit. Pastor Dean says, uh, you're missing a few pages of your Bible. And he said, well, that's the only page of the Bible I have. Bibles are illegal here. Pastor Dean said, what do you mean that's the only page of the Bible you have? He goes, that's all I have. They took the rest of my Bible. That's all I could hold on to. And he goes, well, how long have you been missing your Bible? He said, about 25 years. Pastor Dean said, what have you used to preach? He goes, that page of Leviticus. For 25 years, he preached from that page on Leviticus. Pastor Dean said, well, how often do you recycle your messages? He goes, never. I've never taught the same thing twice. And we got a couple thousand pages, some of us. Some of y'all got the biggest Bibles with the most dust on it I've ever seen in my life. They are really good for catching dust. You put the Bible on your shelf, then you don't have to dust anything but the Bible. It attracts all the dust somehow, right? But that's not their best use. I actually knew somebody, too, that said the Bible makes really good rolling paper for their marijuana habit. That's also not the best use for your Bible. The best use for your Bible is to pick it up and have an encounter with Jesus. I got I to gotta go back to that one reference. They actually didn't tell me that. These, this couple came up for prayer and uh, they were, I, I forgot their prayer request, but the Lord gave me a word of knowledge because they said, they said something like, we, 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 we sleep with our Bible every night. We have it on the bed with us. We carry it everywhere we go. We don't know why all these bad things are happening to us. And the Lord gave me a word of knowledge. And I had an image in my head of them using the pages of the Bible for smoking weed. So I said, you carry the Bible with you, but you also use the pages for rolling paper, don't you? And their faces turned every shade of red. The one guy started crying. And he goes, I'm so sorry. We shouldn't be using the Bible for that. I said, listen, God is not mad at you. There's a million Bibles. I'll give you a new one right now. My point, though, is that smoking it and carrying it, it's the same as carrying it around. It does nothing good for you, right? You might as well be smoking the pages of the Bible if all you're going to do is carry it around or put it on your bookshelf because it does about the same thing for you you got to pick it up you got to read it you got to get it on the inside of you not through lighting it up and inhaling it but by reading it and putting it in your mind number one you got to look to Jesus number two once you do throw out the wrong ideas number three then experience that truth for yourself so what does that look like? I'm going to give you some examples of what this looks like so we can all leave here and start to do it. I already mentioned this story. It has got to be my favorite one in the Bible. But uh, Jesus walks up on a scene and there is a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. The crowd is ready to stone her and Jesus walks up and the Pharisees think, oh, 
This guy always talks about love. This guy always talks about grace. In fact, we've heard him talking about forgiving of sin. We do know he's Jewish, though, and our Jewish law states that because of what we just caught her doing, we can legally stone her to death right here. So the Pharisees look over at Jesus, like the love guy, and they're like, hey, what should we do about this lady? She was just caught in the act of adultery. I love... Um, I like putting myself into scenes, right, in the Bible. So do that. Here's how you can look to Jesus in this scene. Put yourself in this crowd. You might be one of the Pharisees. You're only going to realize that if you're super, super honest with yourself. Most of us have no problem seeing ourselves as the woman caught in adultery because we know we're sinners, right? If you're guilty of one sin, you're guilty of all of them. Actually, if you're, you're born into sin, if you're just born into this world, you're guilty of all sins. So most of us have no problem putting ourselves in the position of this woman. Oh, the Lord offers me grace. Some of us might also be in the category of these Pharisees trying to catch Jesus and and. and into throwing some uh, guilt and condemnation on people instead of grace and mercy, right? Either way, put yourself into this situation. For this particular thing, we know we're sinners. Let's put ourselves into her shoes. She's not decent. She was probably taken from this act, not given a chance to, to dress or to put clothes on. So she's probably, she's probably naked. She's probably dirty. She's been thrown in the dirt. She's probably got some bruises. I'm sure they didn't politely pick her up and place her in the street. No, they were ready to kill her. So she was probably cut. She was probably bruised. She was probably battered. She was naked. She was dirty. She was a sinner. There was no doubt she was in the middle of an adulterous relationship. And she was a prostitute for that matter. And they said, Jesus, what should we do with her? He doesn't rush into anything. We don't know what he writes in the sand, but he knelt down and he wrote in the sand. They waited on him. And then when he stood up, he said something magnificent. He said, all right, who's perfect in this circle? You can cast the first stone. They all dropped their stones and walked away. What I love about that is that there was one perfect person in that circle. Jesus, apart from dispersing the crowd, actually stood up and made a statement. If I wanted to, I could cast the first stone. But what did he do? He also never even picked up a stone. He reached his hand out. He helped her up. And he said, where are your accusers? And she said, they're nowhere. And he says, I don't condemn you either. That word condemn is the word we get when we talk about condemning a building. If a building is condemned, you can't use it. You can't access it. You can't be inside of it. If a building is condemned, you can't even go in and repair it. A condemned building means it's got to be torn down. It's got to be torn down before you can ever use that land or anything from that building again. You've got to start over. It's got to be ended. He says, where are your accusers? They're nowhere. He says, I don't condemn you either. So Jesus looks at her in this state. He looks at her, right, in all that mess. He looks at her in all that sin. He looks at her when most people would turn their eyes. This is not decent. I'm not going to look there. I'm not going to do it. He looks at her and he says, you're not useless. He looks at her and he says, this is not the end of you. He looks at her and says, you're not too far gone. He looks at her and says, I'm not going to tear you down. He looks at her and says, I can still use who you are. I can still have a purpose for you. 
I can still occupy this part of your life that you've hidden from me. I can still lead you to those still waters that David wrote about in Psalm 23. I can still lead you to those fields. Ooh, I love it. I'm that woman. You're that woman. We've all been there. And if you don't think you are, then you're one of the Pharisees. And you're just as much there as she was. They're all a part of the story. Don't forget, Paul was a Pharisee. And what happened? Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. And he said, Paul, I don't condemn you. I can still use you. You're not too far gone. He had just overseen the killing of the first martyr, Stephen. He approved that murder. They all looked to Paul said, hey, should we kill this guy? And he said, yeah, kill the guy. And Jesus stopped him in his tracks and said, at the time, Saul, I don't condemn you. Oof. That'll lead us when we see Jesus and we put ourselves in that story. That will lead us to throwing out some wrong thinking. But don't forget to put your oxygen mask on first before you help those around you. You got to stop condemning yourself. You got to stop heaping guilt upon yourself when you mess up. You got to stop looking in the mirror and saying, well, you're useless. You got to stop when you're down looking at yourself and saying, of course, you screwed up again. You're just a mess up. You got to stop looking at yourself and saying, you're just like so-and-so. You're just like your parents. You're just like whoever. You're just like you used to be. There's no real change that's ever happened in your life. You got to put your oxygen mask on redirect that wrong thinking you'll experience it for yourself and then you're going to go experience it all around you as well you're going to look at others in a different way you're not going to go home and think well at least i'm not as messed up as that person right you're not going to look at somebody else and say "Ooh, it's pretty bad mess up i don't i don't think that uh i don't think that uh god's too happy about that one right you're going to look at people in a whole different way. You're going to be the one that's in the circle saying, I ain't throwing stones. In fact, I don't condemn you. Now go, sin no more. It's the not throwing the stone that gives the go and sin no more power. Right. Have you ever thought about this? If that woman had been stoned to death, what good would the go and sin no more be? Actually, she wouldn't have sinned anymore, right? She'd have been dead. You couldn't say go. You couldn't say sin no more. There's a whole lot of people throwing stones and at the same time saying, go and sin no more. It does no good when you're throwing stones at people. That's why Jesus didn't do it. The stones are weapons of mass destruction. You got to stop throwing them. If you want your go and sin no more to have any power in anybody's life, then you've got to be the one standing there saying, I don't condemn you. You got to be the one that's not throwing stones. You got to be the one saying, come on, get up. Let's move on together. You got to be the one that gets into the mess and looks at people. You got to experience it for yourself. And then, like I said in the beginning, don't just even read the story and, and, and say, I'm going to apply this to my life. Find it in the Word. Find that truth in the Word. What do I mean by that? Well, we just talked about this story of this woman, right? So we see Jesus, okay? We, we're redirecting our negative thinking about condemnation and guilt and sin. 
And then we experienced it, right? We've applied it to ourselves, but now we're gonna find it in the word. We're gonna go to Romans chapter eight, verses one through three. And here's what the apostle Paul writes. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. What does it mean to belong to Christ Jesus? To believe. When you believe in him, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Do we all know John 3, 16? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever does not sin should not perish, but have everlasting life. Did I say that right? I think I messed it up a little bit. For God so loved the world. Maybe we can say it right this time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life when you believe in jesus you belong to jesus and for those who belong to jesus there is now no condemnation and because you belong to him the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death this woman did an action that legally should have led to her death but belonging to jesus freed her from that death sentence the law of moses was unable to save us the law of moses said kill that lady the law of moses says that you deserve death the law of moses says that i deserve death there's only one person who has lived that the law of moses does not give a death sentence to his name was jesus the law of moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature so God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared on end to sin's control, an end, I'm sorry. God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. So now I've seen Jesus. I've redirected my wrong thinking about this subject. I've experienced what it says, personally, I've experienced it by finding it in the word. And I'm telling you, that redirects your wrong thinking patterns faster than anything you can do on your own. And here's the other side of this. You're not on your own in this stuff. You have the Holy Spirit on the inside of you, and he is called your co-laborer. How can you even change yourself? I don't know. It's been a very rare occasion. I've seen any person say, I'm going to make a change in my life, and then they make the change in their life. I'm just usually nine out of 10 times someone says it, and they just don't, right? And that's when they're doing it in their own power. But as a believer, we're not only in our own power. In 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9, uh, it's one of my favorite passages as well, because I know I am not, uh, I don't have any skills. Like when um, I, 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 I like sports, I realized I wasn't going to play baseball, so I started playing guitar. I'm an okay guitar player, but I'm not great, right? Like I know on my own, whatever skills I had, I had to really, really work for them. I wasn't just like naturally good speaker, guitar player, singer, any of that. Like it was all bad. Lisa always says when we met, uh, we started writing songs together, and she's like, man, I'm glad you let me teach you how to sing, because that was not pretty. 
22 years ago when we started doing that together, right? So I know I had to work for a lot of the skills that I do have, but this is why that's encouraging. This is what Paul writes. I've planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that gives the increase. Now he that plants and he that waters are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. That means referring to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, and he is your co-laborer. The word co, this, is a, this word is two words put together. The word co is a prefix that means together, mutually, in common. Laborer is a person doing, this is great, the word laborer is, the definition is a person doing unskilled manual work for wages. Okay? Unskilled. When I read that definition, I thought, oh, that's me. I'm doing the unskilled work. Thank God that I have a co-laborer who does have the skills. A co-laborer who created the universe with his words. A co-laborer who understands how everything works. And when I don't, he is on the inside of me bringing things to my memory and to my mind, helping me make this unskilled work skilled. So how can I make these changes in my life when I read the word, when I read about Jesus? Remember, you're not on your own. I have four or five other stories that I was going to read with you today and break down and put ourselves into just to give you an example of what it looks like to look to Jesus in the word. But I think we're going to just finish with that one because I feel like it can make an impact if you take it and run with it. But you can do this with any passage or story about Jesus in here. Look to him. Don't just read the story and think, man, so good for that lady. It's so good that she ran into Jesus that day. No, read that story and say, ooh, that's good for me. Thank you that I ran into you, Jesus, 20 years ago, however long ago it was. Thank you, Jesus, that I had parents who told me about you when I was a little kid. Thank you, Jesus, that I ran into you on my road to Damascus. Thank you, Jesus, that I ran into you when I was in my mess. And then really put yourself into this situation. Have a, a mental picture of Jesus looking at you, saying, listen, you messed up maybe. I don't condemn you. Neither does anybody else. Get up. Let's start Let's start moving in the right direction. It will redirect those patterns of thinking that keep you down and those patterns of thinking that lead you to picking up stones and throwing them at other people. If he doesn't condemn you, he's not going to condemn the person next to you. He's not going to condemn the person who's next to that person. Your stones that you're throwing, and they got zero power compared to the power of the gospel. We have a God that delights in showing mercy. And Jesus could have thrown that stone. He was perfect, but he chose not to. In fact, let's follow the story. A short time later, he chose to lay his own life down for that lady. He chose to lay his own life down for her. We don't really have a follow-up. We don't know if she went back to the same thing. We don't know if she changed her life. I'm willing to bet that moment left her different. I don't know how it couldn't. But 
One thing's for sure. She didn't leave that moment perfect. None of us do. We all mess up. Sometimes we fall back into old habits. Sometimes it's yelling at our kids again the day after we apologized for it, right? Some of it's getting frustrated with our spouse or our, our friend right after the day we apologized for it. Sometimes it's just being, uh, it's just letting depression set in. Sometimes it's letting fear and anxiety set in, right? But you know what? Just know you're not condemned. You're loved. And Jesus is just in front of you saying, hey, let's just get up and move on. Let's get up and move on. You're forgiven. It's not your good behavior that makes you belong to Jesus. It is believing. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Band, y'all come on up. So here's these three things. If you were taking notes, if you're writing it down, how do I begin to redirect wrong thinking? Number one, you gotta go to Jesus. You gotta look to him. Number two, I guess I don't know if I've said this this clearly and this plainly. Uh, I feel like I haven't until just now. I saw it written down in my notes. You got to throw out the wrong ideas that you've had and replace them with the new one. That's how you redirect that. Throw out the idea that God is condemning me when I mess up. Throw out that idea that Jesus is throwing stones at me. Read that story and say, oh my gosh, I've had a wrong idea. He's not throwing stones at me. I don't need to throw them to other people. So look to Jesus. Number two, throw out wrong ideas. And number three, experience that new truth that you just discovered for yourself. How do I experience it for myself? I'm going to find it in the word, like when we look to Romans. And then number two, I'm going to apply it to my life. I'm going to go out and stop throwing stones. First and foremost, at myself. Second, at other people. It's important and you'll see so much change. Remember though, you're not alone in it. If it feels overwhelming, remember you're not even the one that has to have the skills in the situation. You got a skilled co-laborer, whereas we are the unskilled co-laborers. And here's the last thing, Philippians 1.6. If you don't know this, get to know this verse. And so I am sure that God who began this good work in you will carry it on until it is finished on the day of Christ Jesus. And God started something good in you when you said yes to Jesus. God started something good in you when you said, I believe, and he's not gonna leave you hanging. He's not gonna start something in you and not finish it. He is faithful to the very end. He finishes what he started, amen? Let's all stand together. We're gonna to declare that together before we respond to the word in worship. Philippians 1.6. Ready? Here's a paraphrase. Repeat after me. You started something good in me. And I know you're faithful to finish it. Again, you started something good in me. And I know you are faithful to finish it. Come on. Thank you, Jesus. That is good news. That is good, good news. Amen. Let's respond to the word with a few moments of worship.